Hey, Trey. Max, what's going on? Uh, I'm just finishing up making some coffee, so I'm making a little bit of noise in the background, but it'll be over in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Uh, let me uh, let me start to add uh, Bruce and Julie. All right. Welcome to the Rope Walker Podcast, a collection of conversations with residents of the Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency. My name is Trey Burns. I'm an artist filmmaker, and former Corsicana resident at 100 West in the spring of 2019. To supplement these conversations, there are images and videos of their studio work available on our website. With that being said, let's get started. Today I'm in conversation with Max Kuhn and Bruce and Julie Webb. And Max Kuhn is uh, in Corsicana for a three-month residency, though likely to extend into the summer in the third uh, floor studio at 100 West. And uh, what I like about Max is his website says, quite simply, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm 30 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an artist, an illustrator, a tattoo artist. You're Instagram famous. Like, how would you describe <laughs> yourself, Max? Um, I don't know. I kind of have uh, gotten into art making sort of by accident, even though I grew up with it in my family. My, my father is a a mural painter and before that he just uh drew portraits and bars he's, he's made his living as a as an artist uh for 50 years but it wasn't a thing that really not that it didn't interest me but it wasn't a thing that i was like driven to do um my i, I kind of got into it through just being a a, a punk kid who uh, couldn't really work jobs and was like subsisting off of shoplifting and creative rent situations and that kind of thing. And um, I didn't have any real like uh, aspirations for it to be a creative outlet. It was like a trade for me in, in thinking about it, that if tattooing hadn't worked out, panned out for me, that I would have become a tailor. And if that didn't work out, I was going to become a locksmith. And if that didn't come, turn out, I was going to be a knife sharpener. Like I had, I made a whole list of, <laughs> of things that I thought that, that I could support myself with. So that was, and, that, and you know, looking back on it, that is a very similar uh, way that my my dad's approach to art was that it was always kind of like a blue collar mentality. That I think he got a creative buzz out of out of painting murals, but it was more about mortgage payments to him, or about uh, in the early days for him about you know being able to rent a motel room for a couple of days or something like that. So punk kid, I think that's a good transition to, to introduce Bruce and Julie Webb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so the web gallery began in 1987 as an antique shop and developed into a place to find folk and outsider art, an emphasis on the South. It's located in a 1902 historic building uh, with a massive inventory and five rotating exhibits per year. They have a focus on folk and outsider art, fraternal art, vintage, carnival, banners, rare books, contemporary art, and vernacular photography. And Bruce actually did a residency at 100 West at the end of 2018, also on the third floor. And his work there was about the clairvoyant Annie Buchanan, who was a fortune teller who led several oil men in Corsicana to prominent wealth by telling them where to drill. Correct. Um, <laughs> and he also installed uh, or reinstalled Oddfellow artifacts into the encampment hall, and, um, his, which was his studio and which is now Max's studio. So I think we should get into that a little bit later, but I wanted to um, I wanted to start sort of um, with the tagline in your email, which is 
World of Wonder here in downtown Waxahachie, Texas. <laughs> and my wife says I don't really pronounce Waxahachie, right? How do you guys say Waxahachie? You said it. You said it fairly yeah, well. Waxahachie. Waxahachie. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a wax. Wax. Uh, so yeah. tell me a little bit about Waxahachie and how you guys uh, got there and landed there. Do you want to go first? Sure. It's it's 30 minutes south of Dallas, and in um, 1987, we inherited Bruce's grandparents' house here. Bruce was born here, but he grew up more in the Dallas area, and so it brought us to Waxahachie um, as a young couple. We were punk rock kids who had met each other and fallen in love and gotten married and realized we both loved collecting and so we began to collect together, and then the way you collect to keep broaden your collecting is to sell things, to collect more things. So when we came to Waxahachie, we quickly set up a small um, antique shop, junk shop, and started figuring out how to travel with that being our trade. And so we would go to antique shows in other parts of the country so that we could um, – travel and pay for it that way and along the way we started meeting artists folk artists first we met reverend jl hunter who was in south dallas and he made these stick figures and it was everything that we liked in antiques and music and everything it was individual and it was handmade and and then we started doing research going back to our music love for like the talking heads and rem and their album covers using folk art and it dawned on us that it was all the same thing that we were really loving. And so we started meeting different folk artists throughout the South. And that was our entry into art. And that that built up an inventory along with the other old uh, mysterious finds that we were collecting. And that's kind of what launched Web Gallery in its earliest years. Okay. I, well, how about um... – just to ask, how do you guys kind of uh, came to know each other, you and Max? Um, Max sent us a box that had a book in it and a cassette in it, and it, the box was beautiful and it was it was very touching. Just like really, it looked very handmade, and we didn't know this person at that time. And then we stopped and read it, and we felt like we knew this person. And it was so um, touching and so genuine and so beautiful at the same time. It was like a journal that someone had made into a piece of art and beauty. And and, and, and that's how he introduced himself and we were introduced to him. How did you find us, Max? I was curious how you knew to send the um, box to us. Did you send it a... to other galleries or... There was a, shops yeah, or? I would, you know, to, to back up a little bit, I really relate to the way that Julie described um, how you, you both got into to folk art because it was a similar thing for me of just kind of like kind of wandering through my life and my interest and sort of discovering this this commonality to the things that I was attracted to that, uh, you know, I got into to tattoo art as a purely as like a... a, a a financial like life decision to you know figure out how to support myself but um through that i started realizing that there were certain aspects of it that were more attractive than others and then 
I would find a similar thing that was attractive in, in a style of music or in a way that people created costumes or like, you know, I, I just started seeing like this, this layered aspect to culture that uh, I really wanted to attach myself to, but I didn't know, I didn't have any sort of language to, to describe it yet. Um, I didn't really know about outsider art or folk art or, or anything like that. Was, those weren't like terms that were in my head. Um, and so I was kind of just taking any sort of like clue or like pointed, you know, having people point me in the right direction and just kind of following that. And um, one thing that I was introduced to even before I got into to tattoo art was um, the hobo monikers that I, I started riding freight trains when I was a teenager. And the older guys that were showing me, you know, how, how to get into this, they all marked trains. And so even though I'm not, I never really became fully steeped in that culture. I was aware of it. I was attracted to it. He showed me these early, he showed me uh, the, the work of Bill Daniel uh, when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. I got to see uh, documentaries and, and photos of, of this like really rich culture. And so um, as I'm kind of like stumbling through uh, my like burgeoning interest in art, um, I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who uh, marks trains. He does a, a, a moniker called Freight Bandit, which I think Bruce is aware of. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, so he knew about you Freight through Bandit. through that, that that common interest of, of the hobo moniker culture. And um, he saw what I was doing and the stuff that I was working on and, and creating this, this like book project. And he thought, oh, you know who might like this is uh, this web gallery in, in Texas. Yeah, it was a great way to communicate. And uh, I don't think, I mean, always, all the years of having a gallery, the things that have been the best way of communicating have been great visuals. And yours even went a step beyond because of the words and and just the kind of journalistic way you put it together. I think together. also the personal stories um that's one of the things that really resonated with us because um another artist we show esther pearl watson um, also works all from from real narrative stories from her her life present mm -hmm. day and past and i think that's kind of how max he's documenting moments of life um with his his art and so i guess a, a lot of it's about memories and um storytelling I, I think for us like the tattoo art we kind of knew it through the antique world and the folk art world where long before i i knew it really even knew anyone that had a tattoo um, our friend bert hemphill who lived in new york city um He's one of the people that organized the Museum of American Folk Art, and he curated an exhibition at the museum in 1973 that was called Tattoo. Mm -hmm. And by then, he already had a sizable collection of uh, tattoo flash from the early 1900s uh, up to the World War II era. And so we kind of knew about tattoo art through the world of american folk art and i think that that you know when we when when through me being a member of the oddfellows lodge and meeting um tattooed people and tattooers um that that were attracted to the symbolism of the oddfellows um there was like this connection and then i i got a tattoo 
you know, probably around 2005 or something. So um, I think there's a, a lot that modern day tattooers don't realize about how, how for a lot of people uh, in the folk art world, um, you know, the, the, there's been a, an appreciation of that a visual aspect of, of uh, tattoo art, the flash, the paintings that would be hanging in a tattoo shop to show customers uh, the designs that the artist artists then and so I think you know Max is one of the people that has really tapped into that old world um, of, of imagery and he is able to really convey um, almost like a timelessness when you see something that Max has just done he can make it look so deceptively like something that was created you know 50 or or you know, older, uh, you know, and, and I, I think that's one of your real talents, Max, is that you're able to, um, to sort of uh, create this this uh, ethos in your work that there's a mystery, kind of mysterious element to it. Yeah, before we get too deep in that, I mean, just to get some um, explanation for like a listener uh, who, who maybe doesn't know much about you, you kind of told me when we were uh, in your studio that like this place had kind of felt like an apartment for you and you hadn't had an apartment in like eight years or something like that because you'd, you'd been on the road and like maybe kind of describe a little bit about this lifestyle that you've led uh, up until now. Yeah. and I, Well, for my whole adult life, I've not really been able to kind of fit into any sort of, um, culture that I was finding or even, or definitely not into like kind of like a mainstream way of living. And so I've just been traveling, uh, out of sort of a way to like calm some, some sort of like deep anxiety that I, that I've had, uh, that I've been unpacking with my, with the art making, um, the last bunch of years, um, tattooing was kind of like a way to support that, that, uh, I think for a lot of people, they could see, you know, like, like a band going on tour or like um, a traveling salesman or something. It's like they're they're traveling so that they can you know, make more money or get more exposure or something like that. And I think that on the outside, uh, the fact that I've been traveling for 10 years tattooing seems like a version of that. But really, it's it's been secondary that I've been traveling because of uh, just being an uncomfortable person and tattooing as a way to sort of like disguise that or, um, and, and definitely to make myself more comfortable uh, in a practical way during that time that I've been able to like, just kind of like frantically like run away from everything in my life. And, and in the meantime, get to stay in nice hotels when I need to, and like be able to like eat at restaurants and, you know, fix my car when it breaks down and that kind of thing. Yeah, the economics of it, I, I just, I found pretty fascinating. It was sort of like low overhead, you just get a hotel room and then like let people know you're in town. And through word of mouth, you sort of build this network of people that um, are interested in collecting your work on their body, right? Yeah, but, you know, it's modeled after, there. I think, there, yeah, there's always people who want to get that done. Um, there's, yeah, there's a lot of people who will just, they don't really know why, but they like... <laughs> If they find out that you can do it, they, they immediately want to get something done. 
um, you know, the amount of people that come up to me on the street without ever having seen anything that I do, they see that I have a lot of tattoos, they assume that I do them, and they immediately want to get something done. Um, so that's that's sort of like an easy easy thing to accomplish is uh, being able to to do it. But um, modeling in that way, there, or traveling in that way, it was strictly modeled off of the way that like, DIY punk music operates. That uh, being able to set up um, this kind of like network of, of people around the country where you can play in, in basements. You don't have to have a, a you know, for a, a band, you don't have to have like a, a tour manager or a booking agent or something that you, you know, these networks do organically develop where um, yeah, people can can travel, you know, 20,000 miles just uh, on this like sort of like underground network. And that, yeah, that's something that because I had, uh, I was familiar with that early on being in, involved in punk when I started tattooing, it was just kind of like a natural progression of like, oh, I can, there's already this, there's already a model for this. I can just uh, do it on my own. I think you say that there's already a model for it. You've kind of done it really without any model other than your own. <laughs> so, uh, like, I don't, I don't, when I see what you've done, it doesn't look like it's scripted from some kind of uh, a proto punk guidebook or whatever. I don't know. Julie and I grew up in the early, days of, of Dallas uh, like I, I started going to punk shows in 1982 I think maybe Julie went a little bit earlier than I did maybe 81 for for her but um, I think that was what we realized too about that early punk rock scene is that there was so much encouragement for you to go and start your own band or make a fanzine which, which we made a fanzine it was called Bad Karma where um, I would go to shows with a, a camera and snap pictures, kind of like what Bill Daniel, who uh, Max was mentioning, that documented the hobo uh, moniker graffiti. Uh, Bill was at just about every show, and a handful of other Texans were there taking pictures, and we would do these cut-and-paste Xerox um, fanzines, and I'd use India ink and kind of illustrate it and make T-shirts, with uh with ink like that as well so uh, i think when we first saw um maybe the black folk art in america catalog um and the rawness of of outsider art i think you know that the immediate thought to me was that this is this is kind of the visual equivalent of punk rock this is this unbridled <laughs> passion that it's the it's the most um powerful art that i've ever seen in my life and the people's approach is is kind of like punk rock where there's just this kind of idiosyncratic um drive behind it and i think you know over time punk rock's definitely become more scripted and there's kind of this whole kind of proto punk movement that came out of it where it became a uniform um yeah. but i think that you know if you look at some of the people like um Roz Williams, uh, Christian Death, um, and people like Meat Joy, um, they were, it was kind of art rock or, or well, Christian, in the case of Christian Death, it was, it, it was what they, they called death rock and mm -hmm. death rock kind of was like, it, it, it's what they would call goth now, but there was this more of an edgy punk element to it. And, uh, I don't know. There's something to that kind of artwork that it's so unique and yet it resonates with, you know, kids that are 
are living in a, a rural situation where, you know, the early experience is, you know, through, you know, watching YouTube or whatever now. But mm-hmm. so um, I think that that's the thing is there's like this, this, you know, people always say, is folk art going to go away or, you know, for years they've said punk rock is dead or whatever, but I don't think it really ever can just because, you know, um, when you're young, you organically gravitate towards certain types of art and, there's something to that unbridled passion that every teenager, or, you know, we are, or every human being, I guess I should say, we all, you know, at some point um, are energized by by music or by um, by art. You know, yeah. Spe- speaking of being young, I'm I'm actually not originally from uh, Texas. I, I grew up in Georgia around Atlanta, and we have the High Museum, um, and this was a, like a formative a place for my experience with art, and they have a um, a very large uh, folk art collection. Yeah, I love how they display it. Yeah, it's it's a great great museum. So I think uh, because of that, I've always had a real fondness for folk art. People like R. A. Miller or um, uh, Howard Finster, since you mentioned the Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is is that uh, this is a very um, Southern tradition in a lot of ways, and Texas has its own rich histories. So why do you think this is? Why does a region become such a fertile place for this distinct type of art? Well, I think it's um, the people and the history and the sincerity of people on land that you had to make do and you had to use what you had in so many circumstances. And when you talk about farming and ranching areas, um, you know, this like, Dallas and Waxahachie, even there, the South, they're just as much the South nearly as Atlanta is. Yeah, kind of... They have their own folklore and their own uh, mystique and their own art forms. And, you know, like bottle trees are something that's uniquely a Southern thing. Um, and in Texas, you know, we have like the town squares, very much like small towns and you know, from Georgia to you know to to Mississippi and Texas, the, the town squares kind of are are not that different here and and where we are. You know, in in Corsican and in Waxhatchee, it's cotton definitely is what built this area. You know, the boll weevil came in in 1920. So Ellis County and Navarro County, um, it really had a big impact. It was like a pandemic of the the cotton crop when the ball weevil uh, insect came in and, and ate up all the cotton. So they started kind of growing cotton further out of Texas. Um, but well, I you think know, we, those are the areas that were so historically and, and cult- culturally diverse in that that's what really enriched the arts, music and visual arts. Um, yeah. I, I think economics is, is always the thing that like, Lack of lack of access and, and lack of wealth uh, really cuts through pretension, right? Like you, if you don't have any other right. other options, and, it makes and to creativity tie, a necessity for sure. Yeah, and yeah, to, to tie it back to, yeah. to punk music, um, like that's that's why I think that it's always a driver. That it's like, yeah, it's like if you're excluded from, uh, yeah, having nice instruments or having access to to schooling or having access to the like entertainment infrastructure of of, of rock clubs and stuff, you're going to figure out a way to do something different. William Burroughs, who is someone that we met in 1994 up in, in 
Lawrence, Kansas. Well, we, we had actually met him in Fort Worth um, earlier in the 80s when he was reading uh, from his book, uh, Place of Dead Roads, in uh, 1986. Uh, and and William always said that Waxahachie was as good a place as any. <laughs> uh, I think like the second part of that, you'd have to say that, you know, some places have kind of a sense of place. And I think that Corsicana definitely is a place that has the sense sense of place. And, and I think that the people that have done the resident um, residency at 100 West, you can't help but um, be influenced by aspects of, of the city. And I think, you know, with, with Max, you know, he's lived in, big cities but you know he's also really gravitated towards small towns too and think about creating art in a situation where you know you're kind of put in one place it it can't help but um but have an impact on you yeah i think this is a good uh way to transition to um encampment hall which is this um third floor uh, of the Odd Fellows Lodge that 100 West is located in. And uh, Bruce, I didn't do the best job of introducing you because you've actually written the book on the Odd Fellows. Literally, uh, I own it uh, as above, so below. Is that what it's called? Yeah. It, well, it's not really just about the Odd Fellows. Uh, Lynn, Lynn Adele, uh, who is a, an independent curator and had um, helped us, we, we had worked together on, on the Spirited Journeys exhibition of texas self-taught artists back in in the um early 90s um, she had been friends with julie and i for for many years and she had been really one of the first people in texas to uh, research and and visit and document the stories of johnny swearingen and John, uh, you know so many of the the texas artists that we had a chance to to get to know in in the late 80s um, and so when I had a, an exhibition at the Domi Bookstore in Austin in 2011 of uh, part of my collection of Masonic and Odd Fellows and other secret society um, artifacts. Um, she came and, and suggested that we we do something, a project together. And, and so the result was the 2016 uh, University of Te- Texas Press book, As Above, So Below. Um, which is just another aspect of American uh, vernacular art that's kind of little known, but yet all over the country are lodge buildings like 100 West, um, small small towns, especially where the buildings, you know, have um, have just been left abandoned. Can you describe a little bit uh, who the Odd Fellows were or are, rather, and and why they would need a lodge in the first place? Yeah. Um, so in in um, in England uh, in the um, early 18th century, um, there were a lot of trade guilds and kind of you know like what would be considered um, like unions of today. And these trade guilds often had um, locations in every city where if you were um, a, a stonemason, then you joined the the masons um, stone masons guild and they all had their own modes of recognition and handshakes and symbols and things like that and um over time that tradition um branched out into many more trades than just um stonemasons so like the idea of freemasonry 
is a philosophical society where kind of like alchemists are using chemical symbols and formula to convey philosophical ideas. Stonemason tools, the, the axe, the square, the compass, um, all of these have um, dual meanings to um, Freemasons that are kind of like more of a philosophical uh, type of stonemasonship. Um, so the odd fellows are not that they're really just odd like weirdos. It's more that it means that it's an odd amalgam of tradesmen. So an odd, odd fellows really means that that lodge was open to a wide number of, of trades. And that's kind of why that's why they, they started to call themselves odd fellows. Um, and, and so the odd fellows um, of today, it's a four degree system where they put on costumes and uh, enact a, a drama that's been done in much the same way uh, for you know hundreds of years. And um, so to put on these dramas, they have various props that like paper mache masks and wire masks with kind of um, painted, painted um, screen faces, uh, hand-painted banners, hand-sewn banners, the costumes, a lot of really elaborate painted backdrops, um, and then carved wooden elements like a carved uh, hand with a heart in the palm of it um, is probably one of my favorite emblems. And that's the Oddfellows emblem that's um, got several meanings. It, it means um, whatsoever may the hand find to do may the heart go forth in unison so it's it's a message to the tradesman to put your heart into your work uh, but it also has a dual meaning which is that of charity and that putting your heart in your hand is is to be be charitable uh, and, and so you know the lodges were popular in small towns across america just like they were for the tradesmen uh, in europe and um, if you were in business uh, and you were coming to a, a new uh, locality, then, you know, to be a member of the Oddfellows or the Masonic Lodge or the Woodmen of the World or uh, Knights of Pythias, you know, the, these were all groups that were really popular um, uh, in the 19th and, and early part of the 20th century. Uh, yeah, I think that information is a great way to to orient us in the physical room that Max is working in these um, these histories. Uh, this place would be kind of uh, historically a site of ritual, of stagecraft, of mimesis, and Max is creating a a set a little makeshift small town USA. Um, Max, would you want to describe this project a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, without knowing. Um the history as you know acutely as Bruce does as far as like yeah the way that the boll weevil like created an economic and agricultural depression and without knowing the history of Navarro County or even really knowing extensively about the the Oddfellows and the Slodge that I'm in I'm sort of intuiting just the the feeling of what what life and identity would have been back then that um it's what I'm working on a lot in my in my artwork is is trying to figure out um, trying to unpack like these like these these feelings that I think we're all carrying around at this point of like uh 
you know, it's painful to not really have um, an identity to attach yourself to or to, to the kind of like loss of like regional culture or even to have some sort of um, like Bruce, one of the words that you said that stood out to me was um, recognition, the way that, that fraternal orders have different ways of, of recognizing each other, that what an important part that is to, to being a human is to be able to be seen and to be uh, attached to something larger, to have a fraternity. And, and not just in like, in the way that it's tied to men, but like just as a human being, like how we, we need to have these things that being in this small town and being in this building that was that was the purpose of it was to to have a standing in the community and to make something with your hands and to like to just in, in these like small and like vernacular ways like like you know to borrow that word you're you're um you're doing this really important thing for for like yourself emotionally and spiritually regardless of like you know separate from from the philosophy attached to it i think there's just like an innate thing that we that we need um and that that is what this project has been about is uh, is kind of looking for this thing that we've lost that um, thing that you described about the the connection between um, the South and and Texas with having these like recognizable small town squares that are uh, representing a history that of of the place. Um, you know, I've never because I've never really lived any place as an adult um, and and started to like build up a community. And what's left to me as, as a traveler is, is just kind of like this rapidly disappearing landscape that more and more you get forced onto this interstate when you're traveling and you are just seeing a more and more homogenous uh, culture that, um, you know, not to like pine for the good old days, but I don't think that that really existed. And, and, and there's so much like societal progress that I really value and I'm really thankful for, but there, it, what we're losing is something that is, uh, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I, I got kind of turned around there. Um, well, it, it's like, it, I think when in seeing what Max is creating, he is, um, creating a town that shows the touch of humans, whether it be through sign painting or building, it's that handmade aspect that, which create memories through, um, what we've built through historical times of buildings mm -hmm. and signs and businesses, independent businesses. And those things are slowly dwindling and they're becoming much more homogenized. And um, every, every town's got the same thing and the buildings look a lot very similar. So there's not those distinct human qualities within small towns anymore. And, 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 you know, Max is one of those people as he's traveled, he identifies these things and realizes how beautiful they are. And they're, they're sculpturally beautiful. They're artistic and crafted. And they're also memory making. And we, we're not building things that are memory making anymore. Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's funny because like, uh, you know, Americana is a thing that like kind of gets attached to some of the work that I make. And it's not even a thing that I that I am intentionally glorifying because so much of it doesn't really relate to my own life when it comes to like this kind of like mid-century look. Um, there's so much about the politics involved in that that era that I you know abhor and like really what I, when I'm kind of depicting that it's not it's not necessarily that I'm glorifying it but that I'm using that as a way to highlight um, something some sort of like emotional loss that we're going through. 
that when you yeah when you lose this whether whether it's like an like americana like whatever that that bullshit word is like that when we when we're losing um, more subtle aspects of like what has been a comfort to us um, on an emotional level of, of of being being a part of a world being a part of a community um, yeah that that we're losing those things. Well, for someone who is listening to this who hasn't seen what you're working on, I'm maybe kind of describe. It's sort of like a diorama of a town. It sort of kind of looks like Corsicana out your window. Um, but what, I mean, what's going on? Well, I think that you know what what Max started working on was um, two dimensional works uh, on on paper, and already in the two dimensional things, he started to use vintage postcards and old matchbooks and and kind of um you know americana um ephemera that that he would find at thrift stores and i think that you could already see that he's kind of like creating this dimension by using a postcard or so you're looking at a piece and you're looking out a window and the postcard is sort of the view out the window so you're you know, he's creating this kind of sense of dimension, and um, I think he's bringing depth to the um, a documentation of what he's doing by d- doing the dioramas. You can see that you know there's a lot of um, attention to using old tin to uh, make the the neon signs, and he's um, using old vintage fabric to create um, awnings and curtains and even looking into the windows of the businesses. The cafe has uh, stools and a counter that he's made by hand using um, found found materials. He's creating um, this whole three-dimensional inner world where it's almost like you're this giant voyeur, you know, you're the King Kong looking uh, in the in the the building's windows, and you know there are you know he's getting more detailed at, at what he's including. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I look at the work and I it's it kind of is like uh, I mean, part of it reminds me of sort of like Synecdoche, New York, that film, like where you're sort of trying to construct the or like Beetlejuice or something, mm-hmm. where you have this person like constructing the the thing that they're in to sort of understand it more to express what it means to be inside of it um and that's it's it's funny because that's such a like small town america thing like it feels like you you have somebody in a lot of towns that will do that to kind of honor the town yeah exactly yeah well i mean i think we're kind of in uh, getting to the end of this thing um max i want i mean maybe if you wanted to describe a little bit about uh, where this project is going and how you see it sort of resolving, or if you're even ready to talk about that. Um, yeah, I think I'm just going to continue to produce, to pursue the, the kind of overlapping uh, multimedia thing that, that uh, working on this diorama has already in my head inspired a lot of um, two dimensional paintings that I want to do that incorporate a lot of writing that, that maybe more explicitly say the things that, are motivating the yeah the assemblage and the, and the sculptural stuff and um, over the last several days I've been doing um, phone interviews it's been sort of necessary because of the you know where we're at uh, 
going with the lockdown to do things over the phone, but um, I've connected to, with some people uh, in the town to, um, yeah, do interviews about, about some of the, uh, some of the topics that are motivating me in creating this diorama that I want to be able to um, create a kind of like soundscape and, and sound collage with those interviews and um, field recordings from the town. Like I've really been enjoying the getting used to the kind of the rhythm of, uh, you know, Sunday church bells and, and the local freight traffic, but the, the train lines that you know, run through town. Um, did you to, meet the rope walker? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I got a great prepping yesterday of that. Oh, good, um, good. But, uh, yeah, that I want to be able to play that. I, I, this diorama um, will incorporate um, some homemade speakers that I can play um, the soundscape within it. Okay. Well, I mean, is anybody, I mean, how do we do, guys? Do you think we did all right? Well, I'm, I'm worried that, I, that I've left you with a lot of uh, editing. I'm just so, I can be so, uh, I, I talk in circles and, and get kind of mealy mouth. So I hope you're able to get something. I think you explained it well. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> well, I think, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to explain something that we're not in front of. So I think that, and it's personal, and I think you explained it very well. But it's definitely a diorama. It's going to have to be seen in person at some point for uh, it to be seen in the three dimension that it's yeah. supposed to. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank Enjoy you. I enjoyed it. With y'all. Um, have a great afternoon. Yeah, you for too. Sure. Thanks so much for your yeah. for your time. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for for calling us up. Bye. See you guys.